0: Good morning. Weather is warming up. So, no more excuse now to skip church on Sunday morning, all right? I hope you all are following along with the handout that you got the first week of the series by doing your homework. So I hope everyone's read chapter 4 before today. Going into next week and the following week there's more chapters to read. Given that there's more chapters to read, there's less that I can summarize, so it would be advantageous to read the chapters before coming to the service. So next week is chapters 5 to 7, and then the week after that, chapters 8 to 10. In the book of Romans, chapter 15, and verse 4, we read this verse where it says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so we study these stories in the Old Testament, we study these things uh, that are written in order so that we also, through faith and patience, inherit the promises, through faith and patience and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And my prayer today is that as we look at chapter chapter 4 and we see uh, what goes on in this chapter, that we would leave here with hope, that we would leave here knowing that The Lord is with us to help us. So last week we ended chapter 3 with Haman issuing a decree or an edict uh, that everyone in the king's provinces had to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people throughout the provinces. And the city of Susa was a bit confused, but Haman was rejoicing because of this. So they were basically at the brink of a holocaust. They were at the brink of a of a genocide that was going to take place. I don't know how many of you know, but yesterday, January 27th, was actually the International uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day, where people all over the world remember what happened during World War II and how the and the Jewish Holocaust that took place during that time. And I think it's pertinent that it was celebrated yesterday. And we're studying through the series of Esther to see some of the um, anti-Semitism in this book against the Jewish people. And as we saw last week, we are the true Jewish people uh, as we give our lives to Christ and walk with him and accept him as our Savior. So, coming into chapter four, Mordecai hears about this edict that was sent out. And in, he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he begins to wail loudly and cry out there. And so, when the edict arrives as well into some of the other provinces, there's great mourning among the Jews. And so, there's fasting and there's weeping and wailing. But there's one person that doesn't know what's going on, and that's Esther. She's sort of in the dark. And so she hears about what Mordecai's doing out in the streets, and she hears about all of these things that's, uh, that's going on. And so she sends some clothes, actually, to Mordecai in order for him to change from his, his sackcloth and ashes and put on some nice clothes. So Esther, um, but Mordecai refuses that. And so what happens is that Esther sends her attendants to Mordecai and says, hey, what's going on? And so Mordecai gives this uh, reply in Esther chapter 4 and verse 8. He also gave him, uh, gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation. This is the answer that Mordecai gives back to Esther, which has been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go to the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So there's this, there's this instruction that Mordecai gives to Esther, go and beg for your people. Now, initially, Esther is hesitant to this. She doesn't obey right away, right? She gives this excuse and says that, look, I haven't been called into the king's presence for 30 days, and you know the law that's here that unless I'm called by the king, I cannot go. And so her hesitation actually gives us comfort and hope, who many times we're not very quick to step up. And stand in the gap. Many times we're not quick to step up and do what we're supposed to do. And Esther here, she hesitates a little bit. And then Mordecai and Esther have this exchange, which ends chapter 4. And this exchange from verses 12 to 16 is probably the most famous part of the book of Esther. And it's probably some of the phrases and lines that are very common to, uh, to us when we think about the book of Esther. And so it starts off, it says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. So Esther sends the, the, her response to Mordecai and says, look, I haven't been called to the king. I can't go, right? I haven't seen him for 30 days. And then the response is here. Do not. This is Mordecai's response. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at some of these things this morning, that you would speak to us and that you would encourage us. Lord, that we would be bold for you, that we would be willing to take a risk for the cause of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this story here is pretty interesting. Actually, the the tone of Mordecai actually here is pretty interesting because um, some scholars actually think that Mordecai is actually giving Esther a threat here, uh, a veiled threat. Because actually what Mordecai says here, he says, look, Esther, if you're not going to do what you can do, deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. But then he tags on and he says, but you and your family will still Perish. So in one sense, now, if deliverance came from another place, then she also should be saved. But here Mordecai says, look, if you're not going to do this, deliverance will come from another place, but you will perish, right? So it seems like a little bit of a threat that Mordecai is giving to, to, uh, to Esther. But in any case, Mordecai challenges her and she rises up to the challenge. And here we see the strength, the boldness and the courage of Esther to lay down her life, Right? not just for herself and for her family, but also for the whole nation. So this morning, I just would like to go through in, in this chapter and just see four lessons that we can take away, four things that we can take away from this from this passage. Number one, and this is similar to what I shared in, in, in part one of this series, is the virtue of self-sacrifice exemplifies true beauty. Now, the author is very, the author of this book is, is an amazing author, I think, because he offers so much compare and contrast. He offers so much dramatic irony. He offers so many different themes within this book. But here we see in chapter one and two, as we saw before, we see so much pomp, extravagance, um, wealth and fame. The king is showing off all of these things. He brings out all of his gold. He has his huge feast, and um, he wants to show off his queen as well, Queen Vashti, to all the people. I think if we were to characterize the, the, the theme or the mood at that time, we would say that it was one of selfishness, just concerned with me, myself, and I, what can I get from this? And the, the contrast is with Chapter 4, because here in chapter 4, with Esther's answer, and she says, look, I'm going to go to the king, and if I perish, I perish, I think that the the mood or the the, the type that's here is the idea of self-sacrifice. In chapter 2 and everything that's going through, uh, that Esther is going through, we don't see at any point in time in chapter 2 that Esther is willing to die and say, no, I'm going to hold to my Jewish ideals and I'm going to hold to what the Jewish people uh, teach you No, know, and, and, and die instead of going into the king. No, she never says anything like that. But in chapter 4, we see a contrast with Esther. Now we see that she's willing to die. She's willing to lay down her life. And this is a theme we see in the New Testament. In John 15, verse 13, greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is what we see as Esther, as a, as a type of Christ, how she was willing to lay down her life in order to intercede for her people and for, for her nation. In Ephesians chapter two, it says, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. True beauty, I believe, is exemplified in self-sacrifice. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament about Abraham uh, and how he wanted to find a wife for his son Isaac. And so Abraham sends his servant back to his homeland, and he tells his servant to go and bring back a, a woman for his, wife, for his son Isaac. As as uh, as his wife, and so the servant comes to this place where uh, Abraham's family is around the place where they live, and the servant puts a petition before the Lord. He puts he puts a test we can say before the Lord, and he says, "Lord, I'm here, and I'm here to. I need some water, and I need some water for my camels. So here's the test, Lord. I'm at the well. The first girl that comes and offers me water, and then on her own says, "I'm going to give water to your camels." that's the girl. What was the qualification he was looking for? Someone who is willing to sacrifice. You know, watering camels, giving water to camels is not some easy thing. Camels drink and drink and then they'll drink even more and then they store it up. And so to give water to all of those camels, this wasn't just like a, you know, just like the common thing that people would say. And so what the servant was looking for was for a woman, for a girl who would sacrifice, who would think about others before she would think about herself. That's what he was looking for. And that, I believe, is the characteristic of true beauty. And we see that contrasted here in the book of Esther between everything that happens in chapter 1 and 2 and now when we come to chapter 4 and we see Esther saying, If I perish, I perish. I perish. Peter talks about, about that a little bit as well in 1 Peter chapter 3 when he talks about what true beauty is and he says that true beauty is the inner self, the, the gentle and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. I wonder how many of us are willing to make such a sacrifice. I wonder how many of us are willing to say, Lord, if I perish, I perish, but Lord, I'm going to live for you. In Matthew 16 Um, verses 24 and 25, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, what must he do? Deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life. They're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, when you self-sacrifice, when you give up your rights, when you give up your life, then you will find it. It's a beautiful truth in the new Testament. It's a beautiful truth seen throughout the word of God, illustrated so beautifully here in the life of, of, uh, of Esther. Charles Wesley, uh, he did an amazing thing. July 18th, 1738, two months after his conversion, Charles Wesley had a burden to share the gospel with others and to share the good news with others. So Wesley and one of his friends, they actually went to the prison because they knew that there was a whole group of people that were going to be executed the next day. And you know what they said? They asked and they said, can you lock us in prison with these people for one night? Because they wanted to share the gospel with them. And so they were locked in prison for that one night. And the next day, Wesley said, they were all cheerful, speaking of the prisoners, full of comfort, peace, and triumph, assuredly persuaded Christ had died for them and waited to receive them into paradise. Now, this was a risk because those men in prison could have done anything. They were already going to die the next day. They could have killed Wesley and his friend. They could have done whatever they wanted to him. But they took the risk. They took the sacrifice because they wanted to bring the good news of Jesus to these people that were going to die the next day. I wonder how many of us are able to take that risk as well, to bring the gospel to unreached people, to bring the gospel to those that don't know the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, it talks about this. It talks about how will anyone know, how how can they call on one whom they have not believed in and how can they believe in one in whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And it is written, what? How beautiful are the feet? Now, you don't necessarily call feet beautiful. In our society and in our culture, you know, that's generally not, usually you'll say, oh, that person's face is beautiful, or they have a lovely figure or something. Esther, it was written about Esther. She had a lovely figure. But here, what does it say? How beautiful, what? Are the feet of those who bring good news those who bring good news. Number two, no one, another lesson that we learn here is that no one is indispensable, right? The Lord is sovereign and in his providence, he will protect his people and fulfill his will. Mordecai tells Esther very clearly here that if you don't stand up, Esther, and if you don't do what's right here, then deliverance is gonna come from another, another place, So look, you can enjoy yourself in the palace if you want and you can stay there and if you don't stand up, God will still deliver his people. He will still fulfill his promise. He will still do what he needs to do if you don't want to be involved. Verse 14 says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai is confident here that deliverance will come because God's promises are true and God will never fail. It's one of the most beautiful truths in the Bible, the sovereignty of God, that he is ultimately still in control of our lives, regardless of what happens. God's providence, his care for us is amazing. It doesn't matter if it's good things or bad things, evil things, whatever happens. See the larger picture of what God is doing for mankind. We might suffer loss individually. There might be hard things that happen. But it's amazing when you see the grand story of God and how he's weaving all of these things together to fulfill his beautiful plan and purpose in our lives. I was really blessed when I was reading the story about a man named, a Welsh missionary by the name of R.J. Thomas. Now, he's really unknown. People don't know him, and he really didn't do anything so amazing. But his story is interesting. He had a burden for Korea in the middle of the 19th century. And in 1865, there was an American ship that was going up the river to Pyongyang, and in hopes of doing some trading. And so he ended up getting on that ship, bringing some of his books as well, in hopes of meeting some scholars there in Korea as well, so that he could you know, uh, maybe even do a translation or, of the Bible or be able to talk to them about the scriptures. But when they reached the city, they were not welcome there. And the people there came and they set the ship on fire. And so the crew escaped and they started to go to shore. But as they came ashore, they were killed. And Thomas was one of the people there. And as he came ashore and he was taking his books with him, a person came by and clubbed him on the head and killed him. End of the story. Or so we think. That's the end of his story. But not the end of God's story. Was his life wasted? I don't think so. Because what ended up happening is that the people there, his books fell into the water and everything. And some of the people there, uh, one person there, he found these books And uh, he realized that he could use them, so he pulled them out of the the river uh, or out of the water. And what he did was he dried them off. And at that time, apparently, they used paper in order to plaster their houses. And so he took that paper and he plastered his house with that paper. A few weeks later, one day when he came home, he was surprised to see a whole bunch of scholars standing outside of his house and reading the wall. And as they were reading the wall, one man there... Ended up reading the gospel and became a Christian. A generation later, the nephew of that man translated, made the first translation of the New Testament um, into Korean. And that was the impact that this man had R.J. Thomas. Not really known. He had a desire to reach the people in Korea, couldn't do it himself. But the sovereign Lord who works providentially worked and worked and worked. And the fruit of what he did is seen today. So sometimes we might just look at our lives and we can't see beyond what God is doing. But if we can trust in this eternal God who is working all things together for our good. If we can trust in this sovereign God who somehow is, going, is doing something that's maybe beyond our scope. Realize that we are in his hands. Number three. Use your influence, your position, and your life for the glory of God. Be his hands and feet. Use your position, your influence, and your life for the glory of God. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. In this book, where the name of God is not mentioned, we see people as God's hands and feet, accomplishing God's purpose. God has placed all of us in a a very unique and special position in this life. You could be a school teacher. You could be a nurse. You could be a doctor. You could be an evangelist. You can be a homemaker. You can be an accountant. You can be an athlete. You can be a kinesiologist, of all things. You can be all sorts of things. But God has a purpose and plan for our lives. And sometimes we're going to have to make the hard decisions that reveal our allegiance to Christ. In that same verse, Esther 4, verse 14, it says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, you have come to this position of being queen for such a time as this. Use your position, use your influence, use the power that you have in order to save your people. Up until this time, Esther had kept her Jewish ancestry a secret. She had not revealed it. Maybe in our lives, uh, at our workplaces or in social circles, maybe there are people that don't know that we're Christians. Maybe there are people that don't know what our stand is for the Lord because maybe we're afraid of being persecuted. Maybe we're afraid of being spoken against or despised. Maybe there will arise a difficult issue at your work or at school and then you have to decide on what side are you going to fall. On what place are you going to stand? There was a young man, and uh, you know, uh, when he was in school, and he would sit at his table and he would play cards with his friends. But as he would play cards with his friends, he would hear all sorts of swearing and cursing and all sorts of things. And so one day, he was a Christian, but one day the Lord told him, "You shouldn't sit with your your friends anymore." And so he decided to sit at another table, but then his friends would come and say, Hey, how come you're not playing cards with us? How come you and he didn't he didn't want to reveal his real reason for not sitting with them. So he said, No, 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 I'm just sitting over here. But then they kept pressuring him, so what he started to do was see he would eat his lunch on his way from one class to another just so that he didn't have lunchtime to sit with his friends. Finally, after so much pressure from his friends, he finally decided and he said, No, I have to tell them. So he said, Look, I'm a Christian and all your swearing and everything is not is not helping me. It's not good for me. And they were so shocked, they didn't realize that. They were like, okay, fine, we won't swear anymore. And they said, come back and sit with us. So, so he decided to go back and, and sit with them. And so they would, they would be very careful not to say anything bad. But every now and then, you know, a word would slip out and they would all look at him. But he had to take a stand for what he felt was right. There was a time in Israel's history as well when, when the children of Israel started worshiping idols and other gods and Elijah came along and challenged the false prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and said the God that answers by fire is the true and the living God. First Kings verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow him god used elijah in the position and place that he was in order to show to the people that he was a true and living god this was a huge risk for elijah because elijah is saying look the god that answers by fire is the true god imagine if you were going to do that today nowadays we don't say things like that we say let's have a debate you know an atheist versus a christian we'll have a good debate right and we'll we'll argue we'll see all the points and everything like that we'll have a good intellectual argument right When was the last time you heard of an uh, an apologist for the Christian faith say, Look, I'm going to call down fire. (laughs) And the God that answers by fire, he's the living God. You don't hear about things like that. But Elijah did. He took a big risk. But God put him in a strategic position. And at the right time to bring glory to God. And he thought he was all alone. But the Lord told him, Look, I got another 7,000 people that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You're not alone, Elijah. Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Maybe God has put you in your workplace, in your school, in your family, in whatever situation you're in for such a time as this. Maybe there's something going on right now. Maybe there's something that's going to happen in the future. But all that, but as, as Edmund Burke says, the only thing that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. At that time when there's a decision to be made, at that time when we have to decide whether we fall on this side or fall on that side, at that time when we have to decide whether we're going to reveal our Jewish ancestry and say, Yes, we are the true Jews, yes, I am a Christian. Will we do that? When there's a big decision to make, when there's a clash between culture. When there's a clash between the values of the world and our values, which side will we fall on? Esther here gives us the example. And she says, I'm going to stand, but if I perish, I perish. And in our world today, when we have a decision to make, when we want to side with the with the values of the word of God or side with the values of the world, will we stand and say, well, if people persecute me, if people ridicule me, if people say all whatever they want for, uh, about me, I am still going to stand on the side of the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived during the time of World War II, and he spoke up about the evils that Hitler was was promoting, and he helped to start what's called the Confessing Church, an organization of churches that took a stand against Nazism, and he wrote about discipleship. He wrote about the cost of the discipleship, the cost of actually, truly following the Lord. And he was taken to a prison camp, and he died in a concentration camp just a little bit before the end of the war. But he used his position to speak up and invest in others. It's not always going to be easy. Actually, more often than not, it's going to be very difficult. John Bunyan, who is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, the the second most published book behind the Bible, wrote another book called Counsels to Sufferers, or Counsels to People that Go Through Suffering. And he tried to answer the question why he decided to stay in prison when he had a wife at home and four kids and one of them was blind and they were going through a difficult time. And all he had to do to get out of prison was to sign a statement that said, I am not going to preach the gospel. But he decided not to. And he stayed in prison. But God used him even in prison. In a position of influence. And he wrote this book and he wrote the other book, Pilgrim's Progress, which has become a multiplied blessing to thousands of people. Daniel also was brought into the palace and given a position of authority and responsibility. And in a similar situation to Haman and Mordecai, because Haman is offering this edict and saying, okay, we got to kill off all of the Jews. In Daniel's time, there was another edict that was made. And that was no one can pray to anyone but the king. You can't pray to your God or to any other God, only to the king. But Daniel was accustomed to praying to his God. And so he did whatever he normally did. He he went to his room and he knelt down and he prayed to God. But he knew that the cost of doing that was going to be to be thrown in the lion's den. And he was, and God protected him. A beautiful story in the Bible. But that's not my main point. The main point is seen at the end of the story, in Daniel chapter 6, and verse 26, after Daniel is taken out of the lion's den, after Daniel is is seen that the God of Daniel is the true God because he protected Daniel from the lions, then the king issues another decree. It says, I issue, the king speaking, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel for he is the living God and he endures forever his kingdom will not be destroyed his dominion will never end see what happens here because Daniel decides to take a stand and say I'm not going to pray to the king I am going to pray to my God like I've always done regardless of what the cost was regardless if I'm going to die regardless of if I'm going to be thrown into the lion's den I'm going to stay faithful to God and what ends up happening the king issues a decree and says okay everybody now has to worship the God of Daniel Everybody now has to worship this true and living God. Can you see how Daniel used his position, his influence to stand up for what was right? And because of that, God's name was lifted up and glorified all throughout the kingdom. Because he stayed faithful in a powerful and influential position, God was glorified throughout the kingdom. The last thing. It's better to lose your life for Christ than to waste it. So take a risk. And if there's anything, if you walk out of this place, and if there's one thing I want you to remember, just one line, it's this one line. Take a risk. I want to challenge you this morning. Take a risk. It's better to lose your life for Christ than to waste it, so take a risk. Risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss. And Esther here takes a risk. She knew that she could lose her life. She knew that she could be killed or maybe removed from her position as queen. She would have remembered what happened to her predecessor, what happened to Vashti, how she was taken away and was not able to continue as queen. And so Esther takes this enormous risk. In Acts 21 and verse 13, we see about Paul he says, Paul answered, he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Speaking about the people around him. He says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul was getting ready to go to Jerusalem, but people were telling him, Paul, don't go or you're going to die. Paul says, I don't care about those things. I'm ready to risk my life for the cause of Christ. I'm ready to lay down my life for the cause of Christ. And the challenge that I put before all of us, including myself this morning, is are we able to take a risk for the cause of Christ? Are we able to lose our life here in order to find it? Are we able to take that step of faith? Are we able to live with a risk so that Christ's name can be glorified and proclaimed? Esther decides to publicly identify with her people, her Jewish people, Right, and it's interesting because now we see a little bit of a difference. Because before Mordecai was telling Esther to do this and this, and now Esther is telling Mordecai, Mordecai, you go and fast fast with your people, and I'm going to go before the king. Here, her choice is a risk. She could, she had two options: the Gentile world with its comforts and luxury and all that it affords, or the Jewish culture and her people, which is a great, which is which is which is in peril right now. Which side was she going to fall upon? And we face a similar decision. Maybe today you've never given your heart to Christ. Maybe today you're, you're not sure of what Christianity is. Maybe today you don't know what it is to be saved by God's grace, to be forgiven by Jesus. I want to challenge you today. Take a risk. What, which, on which side do you want to identify? We face a similar decision. Are we going to identify with the things of the world and the values of the world? Or are we going to identify with Christ? Accept the gospel and Christ and identify with God's people. Identify with the values of the word of God. There are times in our life when we might accept Christ, but we don't identify with him. We'll say, yes, Lord, come into my heart and forgive me, but I'm going to continue to live the way that I want to live. It doesn't work that way. Is if we, identify, if we accept Christ, then we need to identify with Him. And there will be persecutions, and there will be sufferings, and there will be difficulties. There will be all those sort of things that come our way. What are we going to do? How do we, how do we identify today? It's, it's worth it to lose our life for Christ and take that risk. We have a decision to make. Are we going to reveal our Jewish heritage Are we going to reveal ourselves that yes, we are the true Jews that live for Christ and don't conform to this world? Or are we going to be influenced by the ways of the world? We spoke a little bit about that in part one of the series. But here we see this is Esther's moment. This is Esther's moment to decide and take a risk. And there will be moments for us when we're going to have to decide on which side are we going to fall? There'll be times of temptations and times of trials. There'll be moments that we'll be tried. Should I cheat on this test? On which side will we fall? Should I cheat on my taxes? On which side will we fall? Should I cheat on my spouse? On which side will we fall? Dear people of God, dear friends, there will be a test. There will be a time. And will we be able to stand with Esther and say, well, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to stand for what is right. In one sense, it was an identity crisis for Esther. You know, in this book, we didn't look at it before, but in this book, Esther actually has two names, Esther and Hadassah, which was her Jewish name, Hadassah. And up until this point, we're we're seeing Esther as Esther. But now when she decides to take a stand, we're seeing Esther identifying with her people. We're seeing Esther as Hadassah. Are we going to live for this world, or are we going to take a risk for Christ? Jesus never promised that it would be an easy life. He said that we would be betrayed. He said that we would be persecuted. He said that we'd be ridiculed. Peter in his epistle says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which you're going through. But even in that, God is working, and it's costly to follow Christ. It was you know, it was a huge risk for Jesus to take the gospel and put it in the hands of unlearned fishermen. But he did it. And the Spirit of the Lord empowered them. Maybe you're facing a critical moment today in your life. Regardless of the good decisions you've made in the past or the bad decisions that you've made in the past, you're at a place, a circumstance in your life which is maybe beyond your control. And you find yourself maybe in a calamity with others or by yourself i want to encourage you today turn to god fast weep mourn cry out to him return to him take that risk jamelia the famous saying he said jamelia the missionary who died when he was very young said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose He is no fool to give what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Are we willing to take a risk for God? I asked myself the same question. I was battling with this last night as I was preparing and going over some things. Are we willing to take a step of faith? Are we willing to do something out of the box? Are we willing to lay down our life for the sake of Christ? Look at this in Romans chapter 16, Paul writes and he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. They risked their lives for me. Paul was so grateful. He said, they risked their lives for me. Greater love is no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. How many missionaries in the past took the gospel to unreached places and they risked their lives? I told part of the story before some time ago about a missionary named John Patton and how he heard the story of two missionaries. One of them was the famous John Williams who was both of them were eaten by cannibals when they landed in in an island in the South Seas. And the story he had heard, but he still decided to go there as well in order to take the gospel there. And one person came and told him, John, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. And he just replied and he said, look, you're old as well. You're going to die Worms are going to eat your body. For me, it doesn't matter if worms eat my body or cannibals eat my body. But if I can live for the glory of God, that's what counts. And so within, he traveled there with his wife. And sadly, uh, within about a a year or so, um, his wife was on her deathbed. But you know what she said in her dying words? She said, I do not regret leaving home and friends. If I had to do it over... I would do with more pleasure, yes, with all my heart. She took a risk, and she was dying because of that risk, but she said, I would do it over again for the cause of Christ. Oh, and I would do it over again with all of my heart. Are we willing to take a risk? I want to read you a portion of of what Patton uh, wrote regarding some of his hardships and the trials that he went through. He said, my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life. Now, when he says enemies, he's talking about these cannibals that were living all around him. I don't think any of us are in that situation. I don't know. If if you're going home today, I don't think you're worried about your neighbors coming over and say, hey, hey, can we eat? And they're not talking about going out to Swiss Saleh. This This is the danger that he lived in. His enemies, his neighbors surrounding him, they were cannibals. And he said, a wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket and, uh, and directed it towards me. God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him, and, and, uh, and he ended my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our Lord Jesus, I, let all, I, I, let all his, uh, I lift up my hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my Lord and Savior, nothing in the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. His words, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end, became so real to me that it would that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did gazing down upon that scene. It is a sobering truth that I had my nearest and most intimate glimpses of the presence of my Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. He took a risk for the cause of Christ. Sometimes we're willing to take a risk, but it's not really a risk. It's only if everything works out well for me, then I'll do it. If everything is fine and nice, then I'll do it. If there's other people to help me, then I'll do it. No, that's not the story of the gospel. It's not the story of heroes of faith in the past. But let's take a risk. Let's take a risk for God. In closing, just a, the, this last example from, from the Bible, I want to share with you from the book of Numbers. And it's, a, it's an example of the children of Israel. And it's a sad example that we can learn from, actually. They were at the brink of entering into the promised land. They were at the brink of seeing all of the promises of God fulfilled in their lives. But they became scared and they chickened out at the last moment. They didn't trust and depend upon the promises of God that brought them there. And in Numbers 14, in verse 7 to 10, it says, If the Lord is pleased with us, these were some of the people that wanted to enter into the promised land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us do not be afraid of them but what happened what did the whole assembly say they wanted to stone them they said no we can't go into that promised land those people are giants those people are big we can't go they had to take the risk to go into the promised land they had to take the risk that god would be with them in the battle they had to take the risk on the promises of god that he would be faithful to his word But sadly, they didn't. And what happened? For 40 years, they ended up wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, they lost out on the land that flowed with milk and honey. For 40 years, they missed out on everything that God had for them because they did not want to take a risk. And dear friends, I just want to challenge you today, and it's a challenge for me. Will we take a risk for Christ? Will we reveal our Jewish heritage that we are the true Christians that stand with the Lord and stand with the gospel and value what Christ values? Will we take that risk Maybe to go to another place, another land. Maybe, I don't know what God might be putting upon your heart. Maybe it's a risk to to start a a business that might help other people. Maybe it's a risk within your family. Maybe it's a risk to to go to an unreached place. Maybe it's a, a, a financial decision that you have to make. I don't know what it could be. But the children of Israel, they lost out because they were not willing to take that risk. And in many, time, in, 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 in many ways, it really wasn't a risk for them because God told them, if you go, I will give you the land. All they had to do was trust in, the, in his promises. I just want to encourage you today. It's so much better. It is so much better. It is so much better to lose your life for Christ than to waste it. Other things. So take that risk. Take that risk because God has brought you to your position and place for such a time as this. We're going to sing this song, Whom Shall I Fear? It's beautiful words. You hear me when I call. You are my morning song. Though darkness fills the night, it cannot hide. Whom shall I fear? Don't fear. Just trust in God. You crush the enemy underneath my feet. You are my sword and shield, though trouble lingers near. Whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side.